Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Justin Ogilvie, Investment Director from Tilney's Bristol office, and I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds. We're going to touch on market movements over the last month or so, and other newsworthy stories like Davos, uh, potentially uh, the coronavirus, which is very newsworthy at the moment, and uh, the implications of the Bank of England's interest rate decision uh, which at the time of recording is actually going to happen tomorrow. Before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So, Ben, maybe just to start us off, you could give us a quick roundup and review of what's happened in January in the markets after a pretty good December rally. Absolutely. Well, it's been far from boring. We started the year, the momentum that we really saw at the end of 2019 continued into January. We start off with risk assets, particularly equities, rallying quite nicely. And most other risk off assets held relatively firm. All of that change mid-month really went into reverse, particularly some of the the sentiment concerns around the coronavirus uh, really impacted a lot of sentiment. And we saw markets start to sell off quite notably effectively equities as we stand today at the end of January wiped out all of their gains not a huge shift but certainly taking all of the air out of the movement thus far and we saw a big bid up for for safe haven assets particularly government bonds uh, and gold so overall equities are are largely flat uh, and it's government bonds particularly that have benefited for example if we look at the 10-year UK government bond that yield which obviously moves inversely to the price has fallen from around 0.8 to 0.5. Um, that doesn't sound like a lot, but in price terms, that's around a 2.5% move. And again, to, to many of our listeners, that might sound quite mundane. Believe me, that, that's pretty racy for what is a perceived safe haven. Gold is up 3.5% in the month, now comfortably above the 1500 mark. But interestingly, oil has fallen back. Brent is now back around about the $60 mark, which we last saw back in October. So really, a round trip for risk assets and a pretty solid month overall for those risk-off assets. Okay, there's always a lot, a lot to talk about. One of the uh, main stories over the last month has been the annual shindig, the get-together of world leaders in the mountains in Davos. There's, the big theme there was, of course, sustainability and climate change. Um, how does that and other things that came out of Davos really feed into our thinking these days? Well, it's always a good opportunity to watch the output from Davos. You have a lot of key thinkers and world leaders all giving their their view of the world, and particularly some of the longer-term themes. And climate change was front and centre. Obviously, it's something that that, uh, we think about a lot here at Tilney, and it's in the the public psyche overall. Extinction Rebellion became very active last year, but more broadly, we're seeing this, this theme I think, extend. It's interesting from from my point of view, sitting on the investment side, the Bank of England and Mark Carney in particular has been very vocal um, about these issues, particularly getting a lot of these externalities 
brought onto the balance sheets, and that has a big ramification for, for companies such as oil and gas producers. If suddenly they start to have some sort of responsibility, it's worth remembering Mark Carney has a much more global role on some of the financial stability elements, so he uh, he is obviously a big player. And as in the, the next couple of months we see Mark Carney leave the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey come in, who's previously head of the FCA. It'll be interesting to see if Andrew Bailey continues that that theme and really where where his heart is on the matter. But more broadly, I think it's interesting, if you look at BlackRock, BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. Globally, it runs of the order of $7 trillion, a huge amount of money. Uh, And the CEO, Larry Fink, has been very vocal about these issues. He came out at the start of this year, around the time of Davos, um, announcing a whole raft of uh, initiatives and adjustments at BlackRock, talking around divestments from uh, bad companies or those that aren't particularly sustainable, and really looking to embed a lot more of uh, those sustainability-minded elements in their investment process and launch a lot of uh, a lot of products around that. So there's definitely the shift. BlackRock are now talking about climate risk is investment risk, which is something that I think is very true and something to, to pay close attention to. Um, I think it's interesting. Some people might, if you're particularly cynical, might say they're just looking to exploit public feeling. Um, but it's certainly something that, that Larry Fink has been talking about for a long time. And when one big asset manager moves, the others can't help but, but move in line. So that's a real key theme throughout the year. Um, I think what I would say, though, and one of the risks I'm cognizant of, we're at risk, particularly here in the UK, of being in something of an echo chamber. Uh, and, and I think it's been very front and centre and public perception has definitely shifted. So this shift to sustainability areas, I think, is very embedded in the UK and more broadly in Europe. It is worth remembering at a global level, uh, I think it's fair to say the US and some of the developing countries are some way behind that thinking. So whilst it might feel like a done deal and we're definitely going to see shifts here in Europe, we do need to remember a lot of the press and a lot of the people we talk to might not be reflective uh, of some of the larger economies. And I think there's some very interesting discussions to be had, particularly around uh, the politics and the morality. As you look at developed economies, that really a lot of that development has come on the back of fossil fuels and the combustion engine. And we look at elements such as what will happen with emerging markets if we perhaps say they can't benefit from those same changes. Where does the onus on on driving the shift to sustainability investing really lie? And those are big political issues that I don't think there is a clear-cut answer. So I think we're definitely heading in the right direction, and that's the theme from Davos. But there are a lot of question marks. Also on the back of that, there is this question about global economic growth. I think in order to achieve these outcomes, particularly around sustainability, you need a backdrop of solid, sustainable economic growth. The, the big risk, even though climate change is very high on many investors' uh, agenda at the moment, if we do start to see growth stall, we've had a 10-year bull run ultimately. If that goes into reverse, I think you can find in aggregate that concern drops down investors' a list of concerns quite quickly. So you do really need to see economic, uh, a solid economic backdrop to achieve, achieve these outcomes. Well, like, very much like you said, the agenda seems to be changing quite rapidly at the moment. There always seems to be something for us as investment professionals to think about. Recent news, of course, in the last week or so has been dominated by the coronavirus in, in China. But we also see saw uh, another important news story come out of the Middle East in January. Perhaps you could just 
touch on that and the implications of those two subjects in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think it just goes to show how quickly the news agenda changes. And in the last podcast, there was a lot of focus on Iran, the potential flaring up of that conflict. And we do still keep a, a watching brief on that area. It does seem like both the US and Iran are stepping back from the brink. Um, unfortunately, one of the main catalysts for that does seem to be the, the accidental downing of this aircraft by the Iranian authorities uh, and really the question marks and internal divisions that cause caused the whole situation uh, really to simmer down. Um, I think as we touched on last time, the key flashpoint really could be what happens in Iraq, which is acting as something uh, something of, of uh, a proxy battle area for the for the two economies. And there is the risk those two countries could be dragged into a conflict there if there isn't a political resolution. That's more, I, I think it's a great example of something that's still on our watch list, and even as it disappears from many of the front pages of, of mainstream newspapers, it's something that hasn't gone away, we'll keep a watching brief on, but certainly that the imminence of that challenge seems to have dissipated. But against that, what's replaced it is coronavirus, particularly coming out of China. It's all over the news, and as I said at the top, is really heavily impacted markets. And that's something to, to keep a careful eye on. It is easy to see some level of overreaction, but I think that's potentially warranted given the hugely unknown nature of the virus. Um, obviously, any fatalities are, are unfortunate and not something that anyone wants. To put in context, though, as we had with, with previous outbreaks, it's about the response. The Chinese authorities have been very open very quickly about the virus compared to SARS back in the early 2000s. And also, its fatality rate is still very low. So hopefully it stays that way. Um, unfortunately, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, die every year from seasonal flu. Um, and so that fatality rate, even though the numbers are unfortunate, we yet have yet to see that necessarily spike. So, so far, it's a watching brief. The early indications are that it, it's unlikely, we think, to, to be a, a global catastrophe. Obviously, that could uh, mutate. Uh, we hope it doesn't. From an economic point of view, the impact is more around um, activity production. Obviously, we've seen a large number of Chinese uh, cities become locked down. We see most recently flights in and out of China being blocked by certain airlines. And that will have a knock-on effect both to uh, industrial activity and consumption. So if it goes the same path of, of previous viruses, which is a sort of sharp uptick, uptick, a peak with a relatively low fatality, vaccines and controls brought in to bring it under control, which is sort of the base case I think you have to start with, with all of these. You could see an impact in terms of Q1 GDP, uh, both from China itself, but also through supply chains. But you'd expect a bounce back into, into Q2 uh, and, and beyond. And really, if you look at markets, it should be about long-term cash flows and earnings and the discount you apply. One or two quarters of, of poor growth doesn't really affect, affect the short term, the, the valuations you should place on assets. And that's something we saw in 2019. As economic growth faltered, markets looked through that because of monetary policy stimulus and said, you know what, we think the, the, the future is bright. So obviously it's something to watch carefully. There's a lot of unknowns there. But based on that sort of model, I think you can see a short-term hit, but we would hope uh, and expect that to normalise going forward. OK, so watching brief on that, uh, as so often is the case. OK, it's a bit unfair, this one, um, but the Bank of England is due to publish its interest rate decision tomorrow. 
Have we got any, any thoughts on the likely outcome based on recent data? And what do we think is going to happen? And what are the potential implications of the decision? Sure. Well, it, it is difficult because it is tomorrow. Um, but I, I'll, I'll give you my view. Um, and that's oddly that I don't know. And I say it's odd because I think we've talked about on the podcast before, mostly interest rate cuts are on the day are uninteresting and done deals. It's the weeks and months leading up that we see the, the changes come through. And typically at this stage, um, at this stage compared to the meeting, the day before, you know, we can go online, we, can, we use our data providers to see what the market's pricing in. And normally there's 80 or 90% chance of a cut or hike or, or no change. So normally there's, there's a great deal of confidence. But that's changed in the last few days. The day before, as we sit today, the probability in the market is around 44%. That's very close to a 50-50 don't know point of view. Um, and the reason for that is some disappointing data earlier in the year. We saw UK industrial industrial production deteriorate, so it fell from minus 1.3 to 1.6% year on year, and no change w- was expected. And I think particularly inflation surprised to the downside. At the headline CPI inflation fell from one and a half to 1.3%, and that's really when I think markets started to price in the need for the Bank of England to cut. And we saw the probabilities push up to 60, 70. Uh, percent. Um, since then, though, we've had some pretty reasonable wage data, but also we talk a lot on the podcast uh, about purchasing manager indices, and the UK had some good numbers, both surprising to the upside. Manufacturing PMI picked up from 47.5 to 49.8, so basically at the break-even level, and services went from bang on 50 to 52.9. Very strong numbers, much stronger than than expected, and I think that's helped soothe some of the moves. Um, if you were to commit me to an answer, I don't think the Bank of England is is going to, to move tomorrow. I do think they're going to move this year uh, and there is a strong likelihood by the summer we'll have had another quarter point cut. The reason I'd hold back, even though I can see the rationale just for a little bit more stimulus, as you look at the changing of the guard, this is Mark Carney's last meeting. Uh, the, new, the new governor, um, Andrew Bailey, comes in mid-March and the next meeting is the end of March. And I think if all of the data this month was negative, I think then Mark Carney would have to act. As it stands, you're about to hand over and I think Mark Carney is likely to see it's unfair to enact a policy change and someone else has to deal with the consequences. I think it makes a much, uh, I think it's much more defensible to say, okay, the data's mixed but deteriorating, but I don't think there's an urgency. So I think he could hand over to the new governor who can then establish himself on the committee and then make the change. So I think a cut is coming, but just because of those dynamics, I, I think it's unlikely to be uh, at the January meeting. Yeah, interesting dynamics there. Mark Carney in, in office for how many years is it? I, I can't remember. Can't but remember, uh, but some time now. And he's had good, an, t- good length of time. He's had an interesting time of it over that time, um, but it's ha- time to hand on the reins. Um, Okay, finally, and I'm sure you'll be very happy that this is potentially the final time that we discuss this on the the Tilney podcast, Um, but we are approaching the end of January. At the time of recording, uh, we are still in the European Union. By the time that our listeners might be listening to this, uh, we may be out of the European Union after the end of January. Is there anything in particular that you would like to bring up uh, just with that deadline approaching in the next couple of days, 
Well, uh, I, I think it's wishful thinking uh, to hope that we won't be talking about it ad infinitum for months and years to come. Um, uh, the good news is I don't think at least some people are going to be talking about Brexit after the, the 31st of January. Certainly not if you're a minister, but mostly because the Prime Minister has sent around an edict saying people aren't allowed to talk uh, about Brexit. Functionally, nothing really is going to change as we go into the transition period. And I think there are lots of interesting points to look at this year, particularly around the, the relative hardening and softening, no longer of the, of the exit itself, but around the trading relationships. And that's what everyone is talking about now. There is a lot of pressure to get a deal done by the end of the year. And the challenges we had last year was these cliff-edge negotiations, which are good for politicians, possibly good for your negotiating strategy, but not good for business. And the most important thing is to see whether or not the government then tries to engineer another cliff edge at the end of the year. That's probably not going to be positive. Instead, what we'd hope for is a much more positive approach to negotiation, all the idea of inclusion, and how the government manages to run these, these different uh, negotiations in parallel. I think the mood music has soured since the start of the year marginally. And again, we always look at the uh, relative value of sterling compared to the US dollar, and that's dipped from $1.32.5 at the start of the month. Uh, it's now around sort of bang on 130, which in, it implies back to middle ground, but down from some optimism earlier. And I think just to give us some idea of the challenges that, that we do face, it's not a done deal. Uh, there are pressures with Europe, but a lot of people have been looking to the US and what sort of deals can be done there. And we already have at least two points of friction. Firstly, the point around the, the digital tax that the US has indicated they would respond quite, respond quite harshly to if that's imposed, the likes of Google and others that generate a lot of revenue here, but maybe don't pay some tax. So that's already a point of friction. But also the uh, government's acquiescence to allowing uh, Huawei to take part in the 5G network, again, over protestations from the US. So we're already seeing some frictions in what is likely to be our biggest non-EU trading partner. And I think that really is going to be the theme of the year. Uh, what we do have coming up in, in March, though, is the next budget. And I think that's going to be interesting. We're already expecting a, lot, a significant fiscal boost. This is what we talked about last year. And one of the reasons we're reasonably positive uh, on UK assets uh, going into 2020, we're likely to see more fiscal stimulus infrastructure, a lot of that going not necessarily in London and the southeast, but to, towards some of these new areas that, that the Conservatives have, have taken over. So it'll be interesting to see what developments they have in there. So there's definitely a lot to watch out for, and I don't think it's going to be plain sailing. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking about it many points over the coming years and months. Yeah, I think it was probably probably a bit previous of me to say that we won't be talking about it. Um, lots of interesting things to think about. Thank you, Ben, very much for your comments and insights, as always. We will be back again next month with a new episode. If you've got any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening.